Hi, I'm John Moscow. And I'm Amy Halpern-Laff. Welcome to Ethical Schools. Our guest today is Dr. John Pascarella, Professor of Clinical Education at the University of Southern California, USC. Dr. Pascarella is Chief Academic Officer of K-12 Professional Learning at USC Race and Equity Center. Welcome, John. Hi. Will you tell us about the USC Race and Equity Center and what it does? Yes. At the center, our mission is to eliminate, disrupt, dismantle racism in all its forms. And the work I do in K-12 is focused on how we partner with K-12 leaders, school districts, independent schools, anyone working in state or federal policy or research looking to advance racial equity. So we do our work primarily through the lens of interdisciplinary research, high quality professional learning experiences, producing useful tools and uh, engaging in you know, trustworthy con- consultations and strategic advising through those partnerships. And while race and ethnicity are at the center of our work, we also very much focus on the intersectionality with other identities work to advance equity for everyone experiencing any form of marginalization. What generally precipitates your involvement with the district or school? What usually uh, starts the conversation is that uh, schools and districts are already having the conversation around disparities, injustices, or forms of racism that they're noticing, uh, whether individual or in policy or in classrooms and hallways or in the curriculum that they notice, you know, continues to center um, a white or Eurocentric narrative or experts and scholars and uh, in any given subject matter or in the curricular representation of books and texts and uh, the ways in which we experience schooling that tends not to center or be inclusive of the, the, you know, the history and of how uh, communities of color have experienced in our school and our curriculum. I, I think about, do folks in the school community view this school as an important place to gather and to commune with each other? Or do they view the school as an institution that is not necessarily serving the community's needs or the, the histories, culture, ethnicities, and linguistically diverse populations that work and live and thrive in the community? Or instead, is it you know, reproducing and continuing a curriculum that decenters them in some way? And so schools are thinking about this. And by schools, we're talking about parents, caregivers, school leaders, and uh, teachers who organize to, uh, whether in the form of a committee or a task force, or they're coming to board meetings, and they're raising concerns about school disciplinary policies and practices that are resulting in the disproportionality of referrals to uh, of students of color for behavioral issues, the uh, lack of perhaps training that teachers and school leaders have had in their own professional development or professional learning or their own teacher education programs or leadership programs or certification programs in order to better create better conditions for students and their families to experience the schools in their communities. So how do you evaluate the things that you've just been discussing, which you know, would indicate bias or inequities. What actually happens yeah. when people come to you and ask you to become involved in the school? 
Yeah, that's a great question, John, because that's usually the first question we're asking the school leader or the the task force is, what data do you have presently that's been looked at through a racial equity lens? In other words, if there are disproportionality in uh, in school disciplinary referrals, how do you know? What's the data supporting that? How have you uh, sifted through that data and uh, began to examine the sources of those referrals and the policies, the language, policy language that is supporting or aligning with the decisions that are being made by the educators in the building. And so in, in some cases we have, you know, schools and, and DEI committees that have organized and have identified those disparities. In other cases, schools haven't begun to do that work and are seeking help from our center to help them do that work. And in those cases, we list the support of Dr. Kendrick Davis, who's our chief research officer and works with a team of researchers. And what he will do is he will meet and consult with the, with the school or the district to design a customized climate study that typically involves surveys and focus groups and reporting out in public forums and different phases of the project in order to determine what is the experience of students of color disaggregated by different racial and ethnic groups in this school and what is their experience of the curriculum of the of teachers teaching the curriculum and of course the first phase of this I should before jumping into that phase just to, to say that it always begins with looking at the existing data in the school or the district that is the starting point before we even go into further efforts that involve surveys and, and focus groups and various forms of reporting and then with that information the, the leadership in over, over time in which this is conducted, in addition to reporting out, offering formal reports to the district and to public forums, including parents and community members, it's using that information to inform a plan for professional development or professional learning series that would engage the you know, teachers, uh, school staff, school leadership in a long-term professional learning series. Those are called, in, in our, at the center, we call those racial uh, equity leadership academies. And those academies are designed to align with what the schools and or individual school have identified as the most significant racial equity challenge or opportunity their school is facing. And on what basis and, and, and to what extent can we engage uh, our network of racial equity experts who have specific expertise in each of uh, these different racial equity opportunities or challenges the school is facing to come and work with in meaningful ways with the teachers and the school leaders who are organizing to tackle these challenges. Obviously, for collecting a lot of this data and setting up these things, that it sounds like you really need to cooperate, the strong cooperation of the school or the district. If teachers or parents come to you, other than say it being initiated by the principal, is there sort of a set of minimum conditions that you say that you need in order to become involved with the school? Like do you say, you know, this doesn't make any sense to do unless the principal, for example, is 100% behind it? I think what we start with is, is recognizing that we're not going to solve all the racism in the building today. And, and just saying that aloud and recognizing that there are myriad issues related to racial disparities and forms of racism happening in the school building or in the district. And how are we narrowing our focus to the most significant problems? What are they? What are the, what is the, what are the dimensions of the problem? And how can we 
organize your coalition of supporters who are raising their hands saying, I want to tackle this problem. I want to be a part of the change that's happening in the building and that they're at the table and they're organized and ready to engage in long-term work over multiple years. And so those are some of the conditions that we're establishing in the initial conversations with a task force or with a school or superintendent or a school leader, it, because it's more than just funding. It's, it's about the extent to which all of the different community assets are at the table. Yes, funding is one of those things. How the building and the environment of the building and or the school security are involved and how the school security positions been reimagined and are also involved in the conversations around how students of color and families of color are experiencing the school and the school environment. That includes the teachers, includes instructional aides, includes everyone who's working with and interacting with students and families. And so if those constituents aren't present in the conversation, that's another condition we're missing in the effort and the initiative. What is the buy-in from each one of these uh, stakeholders and seeing this through? The folks raising their hand, are they, do they have the time and the ability, meaning the privilege in many ways, to be at the table, have the space, the, and, and are they being funded to take out, carry out this work? And for you know, teachers and staff members, that means buyout of time in their regular schedules. For parents and community members, we recognize that there are folks who are showing up who care about this work, and there are folks who want to be there and can't be there. Expecting the school to do this work and meet these goals are participating in other ways that, that may not be showing up to a task force meeting. And so I, I would say in addition to who is involved and how their voice is leveraged to advance the work, it's the recognition that this work needs to be sustained over time, it, it, much like action research. Interventions need to be planned, carried out, examine the effects of the interventions, and then keep cycling through to make adjustments and improvements to those different challenges. However, as I said, you know, the dimensions of the, the challenge are important. Let's say the disciplinary referrals go down, but we're seeing a, an under-referral to gifted and talented education programs or honors and AP classes with specific racial and ethnic groups, then we need to organize around that problem in a very specific way, access different resources and experts to help the, the task force tackle that opportunity to increase the learning conditions and opportunities for the students to move into those classes. And that may come into where do we see, oh, we're, we're noticing there's more implicit bias in our observations of classrooms. Well, where is that data coming from? How are we trained and skilled to learn and to see implicit bias in the interactions between teachers and students? And, and that's part of the work that comes out uh, of organizing a team to get concrete about what are the racial equity challenges and opportunities and how do we work over time to tackle them and partner together to do that. Todd, how are you defining implicit bias and what are some of the ways it manifests? Oh, that's a big one. <laughs> I think beginning with an understanding that we are socialized with an understanding of which different groups we belong to or identify with and how we understand privileges, advantages, and disadvantages associated with those identifiers, whether we accept them or, or reject them, and the extent to which we 
are able to regularly recognize injustices in the ways in which folks are treated within that social system. And in this case, sort of thinking about that being theorized as racism, understanding the way in which we operate within systems, within, you know, meaning institutions and laws and policies and guidelines that are benefit certain groups more than others. And the the shades and layers of, of which that occurs relates to whether or not we recognize how we are perpetuating or reproducing forms of marginalization of students or of parents or of caregivers in our actions as educators. So the implicit bias piece is sort of thinking through what was implied by what I just said. Am I understanding that I am inherently biased by the ways in which I have received various messages about who I am and who others are and how I fit within that in order to critically examine a process of reflection that requires me to think intentionally with continuous scrutiny about the assumptions I hold about my perspectives of others and the conclusions that I'm drawing, the decisions that I'm making, the actions that I'm taking. And and in thinking about those things critically, that means that I have to have a sort of special attention to the power dynamics that are playing out between me as the educator and my students or uh, parents, caregivers, or other colleagues in the building and the extent to which I understand where I fit positionally in those conversations. Do I understand that if I am not speaking up when I see something that is racist or hear something that is racist or racially biased, that in fact, I am allowing harm to occur. I'm a passive bystander when I should be upstanding saying, hey, I noticed this and I noticed this from my position of privilege and power. I notice as someone who is existing within this context that sits within the greater social and political context of, of where of our own history in this specific location, in a school, in the United in this state, in the United States, students are experiencing the effects of this, this challenge or this bias or this bias comments that I hear. And am I willing to challenge it? And when I hear it in myself, am I willing to challenge or question critically? Why do I think that? Why do I assume that? And when someone calls me in on a behavior, on a misstep or a mistake that I've made, is my reaction to immediately reject it? Or is it to embrace the feedback and listen and believe the person when they say, this was harmful to me? Maybe you didn't intend it to be. And I don't think very many people or very many students or parents are particularly concerned about the intentions of teachers when they make a, a racist mistake or, or express a racial bias. I think what they're most concerned about it is the teacher who did it is going to hear them and understand them and take responsibility for what they said, own up to what they said, and acknowledge that this was harmful to their student or to them, uh, usually both, and work to make amends. But typically we get stuck in the cycle of defending and, you know, rejecting the idea that we ever intended to cause harm. And we remain in this defensive position and instead of embracing and understanding, we all have implicit biases and our work to examine those is never ending. And that if we're in the profession of career teaching, that 
we should be engaged in a continuous cycle of critical reflection in order to better create learning conditions that better serve our students. John, I just want to clarify, are you, are you speaking of random remarks or decisions that an individual educator makes, or are you talking about participation within a bias system? I think that I'm speaking to both. I'm probably not a good doing a good enough job of teasing them apart. I think that when we think we are neutral in a situation, that we don't have any sort of particular preference or leaning towards a particular identity or a particular way of being, we're wrong. And so when we call out a behavior in class that is unacceptable, why is it unacceptable? Why are we biased in a particular way? In other words, why do we think a safe and uh, productive classroom is one in which the students are quietly listening and attending to whatever the teacher has to say, rather than engaging vociferously, dynamically, and, and you know, passionately having arguments and discussions about the topic or the concepts that are happening, or questioning the assumptions or conclusions that the teacher is making as a participant in the classroom discourse. And so I think that we have preferences, we have biases, we have aversions, and we have those manifest in different attitudes that come through in the things we are saying or we're not saying in any given moment in our interaction with a student, a parent, or uh, someone who's you know a supervisor or someone who's reporting to us. And so what I want to get to is the point, the point is, is that with that, with accepting that idea, uh, we live within in organizations and institutions that favor certain attitudes, expectations, and as a result of, of those sort of that value system that's implied by those rules, folks follow the rules to the extent that they see it uh, and or reject those rules and the, and, and the folks who are enforcing them to the extent that they see there's a problem with it or it benefits them. And so I think that's important to sort of thinking through the work we're doing when we attempt to address racial implicit bias and the ways in which we have come to understand our racial identifiers and the constructions of other racial groupings and identifiers of others. What are some of the best ways to reduce it, especially given that it sounds like it's both biases that someone expresses in their actions, but haven't been consciously thinking about, and also that the system often is promoting, for example, disproportionate suspensions of young black men or black boys is yeah. something that is systemic, but it could also be that a teacher's first response when there's a problem is, okay, I'm sending you to the principal's office to, you know, to get suspended. So how do you address these part of the ongoing work that you're doing with the school? So a couple of things that we've noticed in our work at the center and the research that informs the work we do at the center. One is that most folks who are speaking up, speaking out um, against implicit bias or, or racist issues that are happening in schools and, and showing up to work in solidarity to challenge those uh, things that are happening usually demonstrates, the, the research de demonstrates that these folks usually, right, are folks who think of themselves as having, you know, good morals and values. And I lump myself into this category as well, right? And, and a code of ethics. And, and that code of ethics is, you know, that they reject racist language, behaviors, or actions. 
um, they reject it outright and they speak up about it and they speak up about it in department meetings and or to the principal and or to parents and caregivers when they notice that um, the student has you know, used that language. And, and in that way, um, most folks are demonstrating a social justice stance. They're speaking up about societal wrongs. And I would describe this of most you know, educators that I've you know, worked with as a school teacher myself and as, as you know, a college professor who has worked in teacher preparation and leadership education, is that there is sort of a commitment to benevolent acts of kindness, right? That benefit students and families and protect people who are being wronged by racism in the school, on the campus, in the school district. And along with that, when folks show up to our sessions and say why they join, you know, this work on the DEI task force at their school, they also mention things like how much they care about or love the people of color in their lives and are seeing how racism affects them when they themselves are not a person. That moves into the territory of when the majority of our education, you know, our, our teaching workforce is white women and they're showing up to DEI task force meetings, uh, one of the things that comes through is, you know, the feelings of white fragility, of white guilt, of white avoidance, and feeling embarrassed or shame about the ways in which they benefit from a system of oppression that is of harming others. And that in part, they join this group to seek out a community of critical friends who are committed to, you know, racial justice and, and are willing to hold each other accountable as they engage in the work, but most importantly, they want to see, they want to be a part of changes happening in the building in order to create better learning conditions for students of color in the building. Um, and I think that, that that came through as we saw the folks protesting in the summer of 2020 in response to the police killings of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Breonna Taylor. I think it comes through in the ways in which folks not just show up to those demonstrations, but we're you know, posting photos and videos and messages and hashtags on social media and, in, and engaging in other forms of allyship or making donations, buying books, organizing themselves and, and educating themselves. But I, I think to get back, I hope to your question more specifically, John, I, I think that the way in which folks work through this is, are they, and, and or have they had a learning experience in which they are learning how to engage in forms of regular critical self-reflection about are they learning to look at their own sort of history of understanding when did I first understand that I had a racial identity? How was race talked about in my home and family life? How is it, how is it continued to be talked about or avoided as a subject in my social circles and that, you know, at home and with my family members? And I, I think in addition to working on the self, there's working on the self in relation to others in one's various contexts. And Richard Milner talks about this in his work. Uh, he's a professor at Vanderbilt University, and he talks about the teachers and educational researchers focusing on the need to understand yourself in order to engage in work that is ostensibly looking to serve to help others in uh, communities of color. And to examine yourself in relation to the educational context or the research context in which you're uh, looking to intervene and in order to see social change happen, as well as the sort of third lens being how you understand yourself in relation to the system and to the institutions that you, uh, in this case, the public institutions you're a member of in order to serve those, those institutions are intended to serve well. 
And so I think those three lenses, self, context, and you know, institutions or systems are the three lenses in which your, uh, your biases uh, play out, your implicit bias is an opportunity well beyond this sort of understanding of the concept that we're biased and that these come through in our interactions with others, that where is the opportunity to challenge and be critical of how we understand race and racism in our lives and how we benefit from it or how we are disadvantaged by it in order to change it, change the the ways in which uh, things are happening in a school to better serve the students in the school, which is it, it, which includes raising the the uh, racial awareness and, and criticality of of white students and other students who benefit from the curriculum and uh, biased teaching practices. Be that across different racial and ethnic groups. You're talking about how people who have become aware of their implicit bias, and they're anxious to do something about it, ways that that they can be self-reflective. Have you seen strategies in schools that help to open up teachers who aren't in that place and who may just be feeling very defensive that whenever anybody says anything, they immediately say, oh, you're calling me a racist, and then just shut off completely? How can a school community, how can the the teachers and principals break through some of that resistance. Have you seen good examples of that? I've seen the, the most effective examples being when the school leaders or the folks organizing and, and, and partnering uh, with us to, to facilitate these sessions have built some meaningful rapport and relationships with the, you know, the teachers in the building and have with the department of, of teachers or the faculty you know, meeting of teachers have regularly worked at creating a space in which in fact, opposing views are going to come up and that we value criticality. We value interrogating the position or the comment that is being made or, and we value the opportunity to unpack it and learn from it. And that seems pretty basic, but that's not very perfect. And I think that the, the general consensus of that I've experienced in, in those kinds of meetings is that we are going to thrive. We're going to survive and thrive beyond this meeting. This meeting isn't going to solve all of our racist problems. And so I, I think there's the, the more effective ones have been in the cases in which questions are intentionally framed around one's personal relation to this you know, the challenge there, what is their personal stake in it? How do they identify? How have they experienced? If they feel they've been called a racist, why is that? Do they have an opportunity to unpack that further? Or are they simply diverting attention to something that wasn't said in order to evade talking about racism altogether or the ways in which they might be benefiting from a center, from, I'm sorry, a system that might center them or their lineage or history, you know, heritage in some ways. I think it's challenging work. And I think that if the opportunity is to help build coalitions with and among teachers who are willing to um, advance the work, it is usually uh, in more cases than not, the vast majority of teachers in the room are seeking to learn and understand and have a a vocation, a vocational uh, commitment to creating better learning conditions for their students. And some of the other pushback has been around, well, the centering of 
you know, students and families of color, why should we do that if it comes at the cost of decentering, you know, white students and families? They're part of our community as well. And so it turns into this sort of false binary. It's either one or the other, not that both things can exist. And so I think navigating those questions and, and being prepared to engage meaningfully requires important relationships that are built over time. And in some cases, when folks who are, are disagreeing or are feeling uh, harmed by engaging in conversations about race and racism and feel personally put out. I think that's an opportunity for, you know, school leaders and colleagues to debrief with that person and engage them outside of the main, you know, conversation. And I think this takes time. I think it's, it, it has taken time and, and we've learned a lot from folks who are resistant to it. But I also think like most um, sort of professional learning or professional development initiatives throughout our two, uh, 200 plus years of public schooling in the United States have come at, we've learned a lot in, in the research on professional development. And, and that is that if folks are being told they have to show up and it's a compliance-based activity, they will show up, they will check the boxes. Some of them may speak up and disagree about the, the question or the, the situation that you raised earlier, John. But in, in most cases, the folks who are uh, looking to improve their teaching or are personally invested in seeing uh, changes in their classrooms are going to seek to get something more out of that um, experience. And so what we try to avoid doing at the center is very short-term or one you know, professional development workshop and, and, and take a, a, a more partnered approach that even if we cannot provide sort of, you know, three years of support or there's limited funding, et cetera, that we can, can work together with them on a path towards longer term uh, sustained engagement and expect that not everyone's going to uh, agree. So how, if that person who is so offended disagrees, are they willing to be part of, you know, the coalition that's going to continue to work on the challenges facing students of color in the building, families of color in the building of the curriculum? Or are they there to simply state their own view, viewpoint and leave? And I think that part of that work is understanding how we support leaders who are attempting to sustain it over time without getting burnt out and shutting down themselves. And I think that comes back to the, maybe an earlier consideration I raised around who in the building is, you know, is raising their hand passionately to be involved and, and see this through and not just for the you know, the two years left in the budget cycle or the three years left their, their kid is currently in that school. There are parents who stay long engaged after their, their kid has graduated from a school and continue to, to serve that community. Well, that actually is a question I wanted to ask about, which is what happens when leaders leave? I mean, there's a school has natural attrition, you know, I, although you say that some parents stay engaged long after their students yeah. have graduated and that for the most part, people move on. So what does that look like over time? Um, well, it takes very different, various different directions. I think that first we, we typically have stayed connected to a school leader who has initiated this work and has moved on to another position. Maybe they've gone up to the central office from a school principalship. Maybe they were at central office and left to go become a superintendent somewhere else and lead another district. I think that what's important in those partnerships is that what we're committed to doing is making meaningful, deep connections with all the educators in the room, with 
whatever room we're in when we're partnering with the school. And so there might be, there's an educator, might be an educator at the table who next year is the assistant principal and is now has positional power in a way that she, he, or they didn't have in the year before. I think what our, our job is to not only stay connected to individuals, but also think about when we're working with any task force or committee, what is their impetus for staying connected to this work? Will they see, or are they in it for the long haul? And how, when their positions change, how will they use, leverage those positions to have even an even greater effect on the change efforts happening in the building? And that we're looking for incremental change with their participation. One example that happened more recently is we had a principal who moved into a district position, but stayed connected to the new principals in the building uh, because uh, along with the principalship, an assistant principal also left the same year this individual left. So a new principal, a new assistant principal, uh, but the uh, exiting principal for the year following continued to, to stay connected show up to the DEI committee meetings regularly on the phone with the new principal offering uh, coaching and additional advising and support. And I think that's a great, and, and staying continuous, continuing to stay connected with us and out of love, support, dedication to the school community and to the uh, educators in the building who were looking to see this through. In addition to doing that, and I would say he's probably an exception, he also worked with us to figure out how could he advance this work in his new position, which was entirely different from leading a school. And now he's running a, a central office department and they're responsible for district-wide you know, offices and initiatives. And, and it's in a very specific area, um, school operations, district operations. And so I think that those are other examples that come through. I think that this has been instructive to us in thinking about who are these school leaders? What is the what makes up the profile of the anti-racist school leader who is, you know, continuously committed to seeing this work through, no matter what position they find themselves in the year after? And I would say that, you know, what's important as well is that we've noticed those school leaders aren't just staying in a position for two years and moving on typically. And I think that we're, you know, we have learned a lot from from them. I, I think probably as much uh, as I hope that they've learned from the professional learning series in which we've worked with uh, nationally known experts in each of these specific racial equity uh, topics and challenges that schools have faced. You do a lot of work with schools in the LA Unified School District, including a project with a number of schools that began just before the pandemic. Would you talk about that project? In March 2020, we launched our first Racial Equity Leadership Academy with a cohort of 82 school principals in the district who responded to an invitation to join this Racial Equity Leadership Professional Learning Series and passionately raised their hand saying, I want to see racial equity gains in my school. And with that inaugural cohort, we started in person. There was a word that this pandemic was coming. We didn't know where it was going to lead. And then we moved to a virtual series when it happened, like the rest of the world essentially did. We moved online to Zoom. And rather than having these in-person uh, full-day immersion retreats, workshops, if you will, we continue to, to meet on a, in a, on a monthly and in some cases bi-weekly basis to continue our professional learning sessions with our nationally known experts and to uh, work with every individual school principal 
to design and carry out a strategic racial equity project with their project team or their DEI task force at their individual schools. And so I think this relates to earlier questions you had about how do we help schools first identify, well, what is the, how do you know there's a racial equity problem in your school? What's the data? On what basis are you drawing these conclusions? And what specifically is the problem? And so we work with an eight-part project framework to help the, to assist the um, project teams in uh, designing and carrying out their project. And so we continued that work. We continue it now. Uh, we're in, we'll continue to work through this summer of 2022 with those school leaders. In the second cohort, we worked with our, a group of community of school administrators or known as COSAs. And the, the COSAs are a group that uh, was a position that was new under Superintendent Austin Utner that essentially took a small schools approach to reorganizing or introducing, I shouldn't say reorganizing, but introducing a new position to the district that we have in LAUSD, these large areas. And so we have area superintendents. And so much like New York public, city public schools, where you have boroughs and we have, you know, regions of the city of LA in which we're sort of geographically mapped to include the hundreds of schools that are in each of those areas. And so under Butner, he essentially created 42 at the time, I don't uh, know what the current number is, communities of schools. And these communities of schools had around 30 schools in them and 30 school principals and, you know, along with their assistant principals, et cetera. And so really taking sort of a smaller school community philosophy to introducing a school leadership position that would work more closely with a smaller group of schools. And so those COSAs, our community school administrators, then uh, joined a series with us. We had 12 sessions with, I believe it was 12 sessions uh, with our COSAs, and, and similarly worked with them to think about how they were organizing to address racial equity challenges opportunities within that community of school. And that was a, that was a tall order because it was, a, it was an entirely new position that they were starting during the pandemic. And they were getting their footing as they were starting in those leadership positions, having just left the principalship. And really getting to know and build community with their principals who were leading the, you know, the schools in their community of schools. So we continue to, to offer targeted support sessions for those school leaders who are seeing through racial equity initiatives um, in their school or their community of schools. And that, that's been an incredibly rewarding process to work with those leaders who continue to advocate for racial equity gains in their schools. Many educational leaders talk about the importance of parent involvement, but schools frequently don't do a good job of actually involving parents, especially low-income parents and communities of color uh, in actual decision-making. How do you envision changing those relationships? I think how we decide what constitutes parental involvement is a starting point for us, you know, as school leaders and, and school teachers. What we assume, this goes back to the conversation, the complicated conversation on that, on implicit bias. It's sort of, what do we think looks like, sounds like, feels like strong parental involvement? And how are we reproducing ideas that have existed, you know, decades, you know, through our whole life in terms of our experience as a child of K-12 schooling and the the manner in which our parents were involved or not involved. Um, and so that looks very different in 2022 than it did 
for me in 1987 or 1985 as a five-year-old. What it looks like is the ways in which parents, caregivers have access to through social media, through learning platforms, uh, learning management systems that the school is using to participate and stay in touch with teachers and school leaders and have a more uh, immediate access to uh, talking to a teacher on a social media platform of some kind, be it a closed platform or the teacher is on some form of social media and stays connected to the uh, parents that, that way. So I think that what it, what it looks like, what it, what it has looked like is that folks are following what's happening at the school. Folks are posting on their, students are posting on their experiences at school. Parents are commenting and seeing what's happening and staying connected to the, the principal leadership and the um, and teachers. In terms of their, how they are, you know, sort of surveyed or polled about their experience of the school, how intentionally is that done? How often is it done? Are they working with a survey expert to do, to regularly conduct those surveys and to stay connected to them through uh, public reporting on that information? Is there, in addition to having the in-person meetings, which, you know, during the pandemic has been you know, slim. Is it being live streamed in any kind of way? Is it being recorded and, and disseminated over a platform or a YouTube channel that the school has it set up in which parents can also see what's going on or happening in those meetings, whether they're at work on the job or able to watch it in between. And so I, I think that showing up to a parent teacher conference is no longer sort of a substitute for the multiple op, you know, options that are available to teachers and and parents to stay connected to one another. I I think that's also true in terms of how parents have had greater access through these learning platforms like Canvas or other K-12 platforms to what's happening with grades and what's happening with feedback and and the teacher's ability to email the parents. Um, I think that what comes back to is what is the mindset, position, perspective of the educator, of the school leaders. How are those attitudes and biases coming through in terms of how they expect the parent to respond to them or they haven't been responsive, you know, over certain channels? So am I dismissing them as unresponsive? Am I dismissing them as not caring or not showing up when I don't even know if those, you know, emails are getting to them or if they're getting the social media or, you know, or the text notifications or whatever the school platform is set up to do? So I think part of this is just is figuring, asking parents generally, what works for you? How do you want to be connected? And what's a, a meaningful, what do you think is a meaningful way to be involved in? And what are your limitations to being involved? And how can the school be flexible and, and offer a greater range of accommodations to stay connected to parents who, who do care about their students and their students' well-being? And what are the parents' expectations of the school? And are those, uh, you know, clear? Is there a space in which those are invited, not just sort of heard and uh, put aside as uh, a complaint? When that there is content, there is information in that complaint that is worth validating, regardless of whether you agree with it or not, that could change the way you offer options and channels for, for parents to be involved. Thank you, Dr. John Pascarella of the USC Race and Equity Center. And thank you, listeners. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with friends and colleagues. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating or review. This helps others to find the show. 
Check out our website, ethicalschools.org, for more episodes and articles and to subscribe to our monthly emails. We post annotated transcripts of our interviews to make them easy to use in workshops or classes. And we work with consultants to offer a customized SEL program with a focus on ethics for schools and youth programs in the New York City and San Francisco Bay areas. Contact us at hosts at ethicalschools.org. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Ethical Schools. Our editor and social media manager is Amanda Denchi. 